You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. In a world of increasing global tensions, growing scarcity of resources, and persisting structures of inequality and oppression, individuals throughout history have continued to fight for their rights. This week, two people share their journey to freedom with us. Now, first story, Hanif, a Hazara man who fled Pakistan in 2013, tells of his long and perilous journey to Australia. Although he was spared the worst of our harsh immigration system, eight years later, he remains on a temporary visa, uncertain whether he'll be able to stay permanently. And heads up, this story contains discussions of racially motivated violence and mental illness. It was uh, 17th of April, 2013, when I left home. 5 a.m. in the morning. So I'm born in, in Pakistan, in Quetta. And uh, what is there in Quetta, uh, Hazaras are persecuted due to their religion, on the basis of their religion. Their, um, two different groups of Muslims, one of them are Shia, the other is Sunni, and uh, Shia and Sunni both accept each other, both, both say, yeah, you are, you are Shia and Sunni, you are both brothers, and that's alright, it's fine. And there are some extremist groups among Sunnis at the moment who believe Shias are not Muslims, that they are infidels. That's why, and they have this ideology that if you kill Shia, you will go to heaven. And that's why, like, they try to kill Hazaras in Quetta. And one of the uh, advantage they have in killing Hazara, we are really easily like uh, recognizable. We, they can recognize us really easily from how we look, like our facial structure and our lifestyle and our language. They can really easily understand. They even can uh, recognize us like by our name. Like, uh, for example, there is a coach going to a different town and like about 30 terrorists has just stopped the, the bus and they have checked everyone's identity, like their ID cards. And they have recognized Shias, Hazaras, and they have shot them over there and they have left others, others to go. When Hanif first arrived in Tasmania, my partner Ben worked for an organization that supported young asylum seekers in community detention. Hanif was one of a group of young Hazara men Ben worked with and they have stayed friends in the eight years since. One afternoon, we visited Hanif in his apartment. On a break from researching his honours thesis on brain cancer, he told us the whole story of his escape from Pakistan. I went to a few, a few times, like in mosque, just for the prayers. And like there were bomb blasts in, in the in mosque. There were about 70 people died, like 200 were injured. Like once I, so that was happening like on a daily basis. And there was another reason that Hanif was individually targeted by the Taliban. His brother worked as a translator for the U.S. Army in Afghanistan. For me, the Taliban said, like, your brother is helping infidels in Afghanistan. So, and it was a really clear uh, target for them. Somehow I heard about, um, like, Australia or Europe or America or West countries. There were people, like, um, who had moved before, before me. So I was just um, hearing their stories, like how they are doing, they are safe and they are doing well. And, and uh, 
when things got difficult, like life, um, life was really difficult, and I decided, I said, well, maybe I can do that too, I think. But it wasn't going to be easy to escape either. Hanif said that the government also systematically discriminates against Hazaras, and that made it very difficult for him to even get ID to get a passport. I had to bribe a lot of money to a lot of government officials just to get my, my, my identity, my own, like in which country I was born. Yeah. I had to bribe a lot of many officials, like from police officers to, like, to everyone over there. Once he had managed to get a passport, it wasn't as simple as just getting on a plane to Australia. If the Australian government know you are Hazara, said Hanif, they won't let you come because they know you will want to stay. So I spoke with my uncle and he somehow he managed to find a smuggler. So the smuggler said like, okay, um, if he pays me like $10,000, I will just send him to Indonesia. That's 10,000 US dollars just to get him to Indonesia, only halfway to Australia. I moved uh, from Quetta to Islamabad and I went to uh, Oman, from uh, Islamabad to Oman and from Oman to Thailand. When I landed in Thailand, so what the smuggler had done, he had, he gave me like a plane ticket and then he gave me like a a hotel booking um, detail as well, a fake, that was fake. When I went and came to the airport and the security asked me like, where do you want to go? I said, in Thailand. Why do you want to go in Thailand? I said, well... (laughs) Because Thailand is a beautiful country, (laughs) beautiful people, everything. So we got out of the airport and uh, I got a a phone call. So the guy said like, just um, I'm at this door number. I think he said door number eight. Like, can you come outside of the door? When I went there and there was a car and he said, just sit in the car. And he came to a train station. And he said, like, um, give us the ticket. He said, um, you'll go for 24 hours. The train will travel for 24 hours. Like, when the train stops, you guys get out of the um, train and there will be someone who will pick you up. They sent us from the airport to the border of Malaysia. So there was a border where the train stopped. So, and we, we went there and uh, we had some lunch over there. And had a shower. There was a little river. We um, crossed the river by boat. After that, we three of us like got in a car, in a taxi. Drove for about eight to ten hours. And uh, at one point, during that time, once we realized that the driver was is driving like over 170 to 200. Kilometers. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, and... Uh, mm-hmm. I so said, what is happening? Then just uh, there was a police motorbike was, was chasing us, the Malaysian police. <laughs> and the driver was just, he just escaped away the, the, like that. He was driving 170 to 200. Well, or he just, he outran them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We reached the hotel in, in, in uh, Malaysia around 1 at night. And then uh, the next morning, um, I got a text message. Um, from one of the smugglers. He said, look, um, there, he gave us the address of a hotel, said, go in the standard hotel. You guys will go to Indonesia tonight. Okay. And we went to that hotel, and uh, we were just sitting here, buying some drinks, some food. 
And I, I see like random people like myself, there are so many of them. What are they doing here? Later on I discovered that they were all like, um, wanted to go to Indonesia, they were all similar to us. Then like, 50 of us like got in 5 cars, there, was, there were 7 seater cars and we were about 10 to 12 in each. We went uh, like for about 4 hours, then we reached an ocean, so then we sat in a boat. Uh, was a speedboat, 50 people in a small speedboat. So then there was five hours of on a speedboat. Then we reached another uh, land, and we walked for about five hours in the bush at night. And then we got in cars, and the car moved for another uh, 12 hours. Then uh, we were in Indonesia. So we sat there and then uh, we got um, plane tickets from uh, that city to Jakarta. And from Jakarta, uh, uh, I got out of the plane, went to catch, uh, we were told to catch uh, the bus over there, the smuggler told us, don't go to taxi, catch a bus, stop and then go where you want to. Mm -hmm. And when I got out of the airport, there's a guy pulling from my arm. Come on, come on, go. You go. You want to go to some other hotel? I said, yeah, I think I, said, I am. He said, come on, I'll take you. I'll take you for for fifty thousand uh, rupees something. I got there and my friend, uh, the guy who was with me, he saw me. He also came and sit in the car. And there was an, an Arab guy. He also came and sit. In. There were three of us. Okay, in taxi, uh, we went for about um, uh, ten minutes. And so there a car came in front of us, he stopped us. And the guys came over there, showed their ID, we are from the Department of Immigration. Show us your uh, uh, passport and visa. Yeah. So, well, I don't have either. Then go to my office. <laughs> no, I don't want to go to your office either. So I said, look, I have this hundred dollar, I can give you this if you want to, otherwise um, I will go to your office, whatever, I will run away, whatever. So, and he took that money, okay. And he give me more. Don't have money. He just searched all my bag and my story and he couldn't find anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the journey from Pakistan to Indonesia by this point had taken Hanif two months. Two months of planes, trains, buses, cars and boats. Trekking through the forest and sleeping rough. Evading, outrunning and bribing authorities. Two months of fear and uncertainty. And yet... The most dangerous part of his journey hadn't even begun. And then we got in uh, another car from Jakarta for five hours. Then we got on a real boat from Indonesia. Yeah, so that was, we were around 100, 101 people. Yeah, it was a tiny boat. So um, it took us about um, 36 hours on that boat. Yeah, and then our boat broke and uh, the Australian Navy rescued us and then there was 48 hours like on Australian uh, Navy ship we mm -hmm. reached um, Christmas Island mm -hmm. okay yeah Hanif's voice drops here the words Christmas Island have an effect on all three of us and there's a few seconds of silence as we come down from Hanif's entertaining retelling of his adventure to the harsh reality of the story that we are actually hearing. 
that after everything he's been through, all the corruption that he's experienced in Pakistan, Malaysia and Indonesia, that now he had to face the most heartless and uncompromising punishment of the Australian government, indefinite detention. Once again, however, Hanif's luck prevailed. He was only in Christmas Island for a month before he was transferred to Pontville Detention Centre in Tasmania. It was only eight days after Hanif arrived in Tasmania that Tony Abbott's Operation Sovereign Borders came into effect. His friend, who had come all the way from Quetta with him, but gone with a different smuggler, was sent back to Indonesia and is still there, as far as he knows. I asked Hanif if they're still in contact, but he told me, no, I don't think he's psychologically stable enough to contact anyone. I was 17 when I came here, and uh, I stayed in community detention for about six months, and then I got the uh, upgrading visa, which lasted for one year. Yeah, so during that time, like in 2018, um, I had my interview with immigration. It was for about four hours long interview. Yeah, so I just got my uh, safe haven enterprise visa. Despite being underaged and being assessed to be a legitimate refugee, Hanif was given a bridging visa and then a temporary protection visa. But none of these give him any certainty about whether he will be able to stay in Australia long term. He has to reapply for these visas every five years, and at any point, the Australian government can decide they don't want him here. It goes without saying that he will be in grave danger if he has to return. I asked Hanif about the four-hour interview with the immigration officer. He said one of the main things he had to try and convince them of was why he had to escape and why he would be unsafe if he returned. But Hanif says you only have to Google Hazaras in Quetta to understand why it's not safe for him there. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why he yeah. was still interested to make me prove if maybe, uh, I don't know. It seemed like from what the stories I got is that they try to psych you out. Mm. You know, like to yeah. see if you say the same thing over and over again. Yeah, it was the age uh, thing. Oh, about how, how old you were, right? Yeah. Say, okay, how old were you? I said, I'm 17. <laughs> when, you're, when you were born? The 1st of December, 95. So, <laughs> did you go to school? I said, yeah. So, do you have your school documents? I said, yeah. How old are you in school documents? I said, 17. Uh, did you go to any tuition? I said, yeah. So, how old were you over there? I said, 17. Okay. Do you have birth certificate? Yes, I do. Okay. Do, do you have that? I said, yeah, I do. So, how old are you on your birth certificate? 17. And at that, that point, there was, I think, do you, do you have a license? Yeah. How old are you? Do you have um, an ID card? How old are you on that? And I said, uh, that, that was the point when I laughed at him. <laughs> why are you asking the same question again? So why you Questions like you these are used by immigration officers to test if asylum seekers are lying. But because Hazara people are disenfranchised in Pakistan and Afghanistan, often the birth of their children isn't recorded. When they apply for documentation... The government gives them all the same birthday, the 31st of December. But sometimes one person will end up with different birthdays on different records. Such a discrepancy could be enough reason for the Australian government to deny someone asylum. Hanif told us this has happened to many people. At the time I talked to Hanif, he had 18 months left on his temporary protection visa. I asked him how he lives with the uncertainty of not knowing if he's going to be able to stay in Australia. I'm always optimistic. Okay, um, 
whatever happens, like even on the boat, which was broke three times, I was optimistic. I said, no, I think it will be alright. I will get there. You have to stay optimistic, otherwise it will go psych in no time. Despite all the uncertainty about his future, I asked Hanif what his ultimate dream is, if he were to get permanent residency. Through research, more research. Yeah, I, I'm enjoying research quite a lot. So hopefully Hanif, who came by boat to Australia, one day will find a treatment for brain cancer. Yeah, that can help like everyone in the world. Because uh, what happened? Uh, my father died of tuberculosis. He had tuberculosis and he died in Quetta. Tuberculosis is like a preventable disease, but in Quetta, in Pakistan, um, we did not have this facility uh, to give him like the right treatment to save his life. So that is one of the, th the main things. Uh, I don't want that to happen to others as well. So yeah, I want to just save lives. That story was produced by Mel Chun. To sign a petition calling for the Australian government to provide refuge for Hazara people and others fleeing the Taliban right now, visit the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre at asrc.org.au. Here you can also donate to support and advocate for refugees. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our next story, Zahara talks to her dad, Sanjay about his experience being born into the oppressive regime of apartheid. And heads up, this story contains the sounds of gunshots and discussions of racially motivated violence. We shall overcome someday, for deep in my heart, I do believe that we shall overcome someday. Our children shall be free, our children shall be free, our children shall be free someday. In 1948, South Africa's racial inequality was officially codified under the system of apartheid. Legislation was passed that institutionalised racism, making white people officially superior and the black majority faced discrimination in every aspect of their lives. I had the pleasure to speak with Sanjay Jithu, who was born amidst the birth of the liberation movement in 1966 and until the tender age of 20, was subject to the oppressive system of the apartheid until he decided to leave. Where you go onto the beaches and there's written there on a bench, whites only. Non-whites are here, whites here. They even divided the beaches. Everything. Hotels, you can't go in there if you're non-white. So from a, a teenager, from 13, uh, I began to see the country for what it was and it started to affect me. 
my earliest memory of racism was when I was nine years old and going with my parents and the team. Uh, we were traveling on a train to go from Durban to Cape Town. Uh, Durban to Cape Town is about 2,000 kilometers is the distance away and you had to travel through a, a state called Bloemfontein, which is a whites only state. So non-whites couldn't stay in that state, they could only pass through. All the coaches were separated into whites and non-whites, so I was in the non-whites. I wanted to eat something. So what I did was, I there was another girl, and she was about 14 or 15, I was nine, and she grabbed my hand and we went out onto the platform to a tuck shop and we bought some stuff I think it was some chips and some chocolates. But what happened is, while we were on the platform, the train started to move and I lost track of which carriage I came out of. So I panicked and I ran into, I approached a carriage, which was a whites only carriage. And as I walked two tips up, there was a six foot guard, white guard that pointed his finger at me and told me to get off the train while it was moving slowly. So I had no choice. I was scared and frightened. I got off the train. My father somehow noticed that I was missing uh, and grabbed the girl by the hand and pulled us back onto the right carriage. I didn't have much to do with white people. And to tell you, the, the only white people that I experienced uh, animosity from was the police because I was protesting and then I saw the wrath of the police. Since June the 16th, when South African troops and police opened fire on a peaceful school children's demonstration, the white government has presided over the largest massacre of its black population since South Africa came into existence. Hundreds of blacks have died, thousands have been wounded, but the white prime minister says there is no crisis. Were there any moments where someone acted with empathy? No, there was no empathy. They all acted the same. So what was high school like for you during the apartheid? At, the, at 13, uh, I, I stayed out of school for six months. I was suspended for six months. 500 of us stayed out. Not everyone uh, stayed out and uh, showed their support for solidarity with Mandela and the ANC against the government, the white South African uh, racist government that was there. So there were some kids that did go to school. So there was a bit of conflict between the kids that stayed out of class and the kids that were going into class. Did the protests ever get violent? Yeah, one of the protests we were marching on, on campus in my first year in university at Durban Westville, where I was studying a Bachelor of Science. Uh, about, I don't know, 6,000 or 7,000 students demonstrating peacefully, and the peaceful demonstration turned ugly. Some of the demonstrators began to throw, I think it was rocks and little stones and bottles at the police, and that gave them the excuse to set the dogs fire the tear gas on the students. There were pregnant girls running for safety inside and hiding in the in the theater rooms and the police were bashing 
and whacking the girls and boys on the legs and breaking their bones and hitting them with, um, with the batons and setting the German shepherd dogs to bite them as well. And um, the laws were such that they could arrest you without having to tell your parents or tell anyone else why they picked you up and took you to the police station. There's no freedom. So you're actually a prisoner, even though you're not in prison and you're out, out, out of the, you're not in prison, but you're a prisoner in your own country. Did Mandela impact your fight for justice? So we saw Nelson Mandela as a moderate, moderate leader and we thought he would have been the right leader and a moderate leader so that all South Africans can live together uh, in the country as one. Tell me about your table tennis passion. If if uh, the South Africa were, would have gone to the Olympic Games, I think I would have been at that level to try out for the Olympic Games as well. That's the level I was at, but uh, South Africa was banned from the Olympic Games, so we couldn't do much with sport. Why were you banned from the Olympic Games? Because of apartheid. South Africa was banned, they weren't allowed to enter. So, the, so because of apartheid, the whole world there was a world that boycotted South Africa. At one stage, they weren't trading with South Africa to apply external pressure on the country so that they uh, changed their ways for the better and start treating people uh, with respect and equally and equal rights. But when apartheid was abolished, what was your reaction? It now meant that people were free. I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. And things usually get worse before they get better. So I knew it'd take another 20 or 30 years for things to get better and there's going to be a assimilation and the hatred that everyone has for each other will take a hundred years to go away. So it's like slavery when you feel enslaved, enslaved into apartheid. You're, I was born into apartheid. I didn't have a choice. I was born into it. So the way I looked at it, to, for me to leave that country and escape out of these. I, I created my own freedom and that's what I'm happy about. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. Oh, that story was produced by Zahara Jithu. Zoe Ferguson was the supervising producer. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal Land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands, and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Emma Pham is our social media producer. Our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova, and Wing Kwong is the all-the-best mentee producer. 
Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening.